This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Let me pray for us as we look at this part of the word together. And just a note to all the parents, your kids can be rowdy this morning. That is entirely okay. You don't need to worry about their noise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that at this time of the year, uh, we can pause and reflect on the things that bring most significance to our lives and to our church, but also to this world. Father, this morning, I I pray that you'd give us a fresh understanding and perspective of who Jesus is. Help us to see the kind of king that he came to be. And God, I pray that you would stir a heart of worship this morning amongst your people. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, amen, amen. Well, this year, it seems to me that we've developed a bit of a fascination with royalty, with kings and queens. Have we not? Most of you uh, will have been familiar with the fact that we had the most significant television event of human history this year, and it was the televised funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Almost 5 million Australians tuned in to watch the Queen's funeral. And some estimates say that about 3.6 billion people worldwide watched the funeral. Now, I don't even know how you figure that out. I don't know how you... Whose job is it to figure out how many countries, the ratings across the whole world? But that's a staggering number. If that's true, that's almost half the world's population tuned in to watch the funeral of the Queen. In fact, in the days following the Queen's funeral, the Netflix TV show The Crown had an 800% increase in its ratings as people tuned in to watch. We were interested. Why was that? What was it about the Queen's funeral, about royalty that captured the world's imagination and attention and made us dial in and want to find out more? And I, there's probably a whole host of reasons. But I think one of the reasons is we were captivated by the Queen's leadership. She was a female world leader who led with humility. She had a character that people enjoyed, particularly Australians enjoyed her sense of humor. And so there was something that endeared us to Queen Elizabeth II. But partly also, I think we were captivated by the novelty of the whole thing. I mean, it's been a really long time since we've seen such pomp and ceremony from the British monarchy. And to sit on our screens and watch soldiers and the whole thing that's just meshed together with the Church of England and the religiosity of it. and It's just a novelty. Whether you're religious or not, it's a fascinating spectacle to watch. But there's also, I think, a part of us that is actually longing for a leader who can lead our world, our nations, to justice and truth and peace. I think particularly in this season, we are longing for great leaders. And I think there was something in the Queen that people saw and grieved and longed for. And it kind of got me thinking, I wonder what other monarchs there are in the world today. So I did a bit of Wikipedia research, if you can consider that research, and found that there are 30 current monarchs in our world today. Now, 25 of those are constitutionally recognized, so that means that they have 
largely ceremonial duties, much like, you know, King Charles III, the, the king of the, the Commonwealth, right, who will be coronated officially on the 3rd of March next year. But ceremonial duties, right, they don't have much to say in terms of legal decisions and laws that get written. They, they just, they turn up at special moments, right? But there are five monarchs in the world who have absolute control over their countries. They are the Sultan of Brunei, the Sultan of Oman, the King of Swaziland, the King of Saudi Arabia, and believe it or not, does anyone know the fifth one? The Pope. The Pope has absolute control over the Vatican State. As we read of some of these absolute monarchs in our world, we're kind of confronted and shocked, at least in the West, by some of their behavior. The King of Swaziland has a parliamentary allocation of $61 million every year, whilst the average Swazi, the 63% of people in Swaziland live on less than $1.25 a day. He has got 14 wives and 23 kids. Perhaps that's why he needs the $61 million allocation every year. And even our own you know, history with connection with the Commonwealth of, a, of, a, of the, the British Commonwealth, we see that their hands are dirty. And we begin to appreciate why monarchs like the King of Swaziland and the Sultan of Brunei, who has a collection of 25,000 supercars rotting in the Arabian desert, we begin to see why we don't like these people because they use their wealth for their own extravagant gain. We um, sometimes play a game in the car with the kids. What would you do if you were Prime Minister of Australia? And uh, our second born is a feisty leader to be, I think, one day. And she has a whole bunch of things that she is willing to change about the way the country is run, uh, mostly in preference of uh, an eight-year-old's worldview. But um, it's, an, it's a nice thought experiment, isn't it? I wonder what I would do if I was king of Australia, if you were king or queen of Australia, what would you do with a 1% allocation every year of Australia's budget? You know, Australia's budget is $550 billion. So if you got a 1% allocation of our annual budget, it would be $5,500,000,000 every year. Well, what would you do with that sum of money? dollars to think about ah, if I was all of the things that I could do, could deal with the homelessness problem that's here on King Street and ML Road, could buy Anchor Church uh, a building. I mean, perhaps you could even afford a three-bedroom apartment here in Sydney with that sum of money. I mean, uh, heaven forbid. Just so you know, Christmas is about a celebration of a king. As we hear that, I think as Aussies, we have this inbuilt, tall poppy, natural skepticism to any form of regal monarchy. But Christmas is about celebrating a king, a monarch. I mean, the carols remind us of that truth, don't they? The ones that we sang this morning, joy to the world, let earth receive her king. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Just so you know, let's not be mistaken about what Christmas is. Let's let's not let the marketers and the retailers rob us of what Christmas is truly about. Christmas is a celebration of 
a king. And people worshipped that king. Christians across the world will worship Jesus as king. But not everyone. Not everyone saw Jesus in that light. And let me introduce you to the first character in our Christmas story this morning. His name is King Herod. And this is what it says about King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked him, that is, asked Herod, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was born. Herod is troubled. He is disturbed by the news of this birth. Why? It's a... Jesus is a ba- like he's been born to an average Joe, literally. His name was Joseph. Average Joe to a virgin teenager in abject poverty in the backwaters of Bethlehem, a small rural town. And here is Herod disturbed at the birth of a child. And the reason that he is disturbed is because Herod is an illegitimate king. You see, King Herod was a political appointment. The Romans appointed Herod over the the region of Jerusalem and over the Hebrews and the Israelites as a political appointment. The Romans recognized him as king, but the people of God did not. And so the news of a potential legitimate king being born from the people causes an already insecure Herod to feel threatened. He's a very insecure leader. We know this because if you, if you look back at history, Herod, in fact, he just murdered most of his family because he was so insecure that someone would come and take over the throne. He jailed his mother-in-law um, on suspicion of drowning, and so he executed her. He, uh, he drowned his brother-in-law, claimed it was an accident. He had his two sons executed for treason. And his last remaining son, the heir to the throne, uh, tried to poison Herod, take him out. And so he also was in jail and then executed. And he also killed several uncles and a few cousins. You know, just a real family man, King Herod. Imagine Christmas at Herod's house. Like someone gives Herod a a nice bottle of Dom Perignon for Christmas. Here you go, uncle. And the champagne gets popped and Herod's like, cup bearer, I'm not drinking. There'd be zero trust in that family. You would guard your drink more carefully than a backpacker in a seedy bar in Byron Bay. You'd just be like walking around at Christmas with your hand over your drink. In fact, it was said in the first century, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. King Herod was an insecure leader. And so when Herod hears of the news of a potential king being born to the people of Israel, true to form, what does Herod do? He issues a decree that all boys born two years and under must be executed. Have a look at what it says in Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked because the Magi warned 
in a vision, didn't go back to tell Herod where the child was born. When he heard and saw that he'd been tricked by the wise man, he became furious. His reaction. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Now, Bethlehem is a small country town, maybe at tops, population of 1,500 people. That means there were probably... 12 to 15 children, boys, around the age of Jesus. And in a horrendous act of murder, Herod wipes them out. 15 families grieving the loss unnecessarily of their children because of a brutal, egotistic, fearful monarch called King Herod. Threatened. By a baby. Now that story often gets left out of our sanitized Western version of Christmas, doesn't it? You're going to see that bit on the nativity scenes or in the Christmas carols, and you know, King Herod's decree. You open the thing, and there it is, written on the inside of a Christmas card. That stuff gets left out because it's confronting. But it's an important part of the story because it acts as a contrast to the type of king that Jesus will come to be. You see, Herod is the type of king who will sacrifice his own people to serve his needs. At the end of his life, when Herod was on his deathbed, he heard that the Jews were rejoicing at his departure. And he wanted the nation to mourn. And so in order to force them to mourn, he demanded that all of the Jewish leaders be captive and executed to ensure that people grieved, whether the grief was for him or not. What a brutal dictator. And yet, as we read history, not all that different from ancient monarchs, funnily enough. And the only reason that Jesus manages to survive is because an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and warns Joseph that Herod is about to kill all the babies, and so they flee. Jesus, the king of Israel, escaping as a weak, powerless refugee, fleeing to Egypt. Now, if Jesus is a king, what type of king is he? Well, he is certainly a different king to the type of king that we see in King Herod. You see, Jesus never had a coronation service. He never wore a golden crown. He never held a scepter. He never had a servant. He never sat on a throne or ruled over Jerusalem, at least in any political sense. At the trial of Jesus, Roman governor Pilate asked him this question, Are you the king of the Jews? And in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus replied like this. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus is a king, to be sure. 
But he is a very, very different type of king to the kings that we are used to hearing of in history. See, he is the type of king who would give up the throne of heaven and come down to dwell and live with his people. He is the type of king who would unrobe himself and kneel down and in an act of service wash his followers' feet. He is the type of king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the type of king who would sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. How different. How different a king. Herod, the type of king who would be willing to sacrifice his people for himself. Herod, who has blood on his hands. Jesus, whose blood-stained hands are covered in his own blood. The king who would lay down his Life. And in fact, in fact, Matthew quotes here the prophet Micah in Matthew chapter 2, and he hints at the type of rule that Jesus will bring as king. This is what he says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will what? Dictate, crush all his enemies, rule with an iron fist, No, who will shepherd my people. It seems to me we're living in a time where people care about politics way more than what they used to. I don't know, is is it just me or is it, it seems like people cared. I mean, most young people that I encountered 10 years ago couldn't care less about, maybe more than that, 15 years ago, couldn't care less about politics. Now, we live in a time where there is so much hope invested in our political leaders. We are living in a season where we are longing for someone to come and fix the mess that we find ourselves in, whether that mess is an economic mess, whether it's a social mess, whatever mess it is, we are longing for a ruler to come. As I mentioned earlier, most Aussies are kind of skeptical about anyone who claims any form of regal power and kingship. We're the tall poppy country. We're the ones who want our prime ministers to sit in the front seat of a taxi and to just be like everyone else. And we love the fact when the PM stands just up there and skulls a beer at a concert right here in this room and it goes viral because we want our political leaders to be just like us. And the thing is, Jesus has sovereign claim over every square inch of this universe. And his kingship is a threat to the so- our sovereign rule over our own lives. But I, s- I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is the king that you are longing for and that you need. The type of king who will come to serve. The type of king who would be born of a virgin in abject poverty, the beautiful doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time, of God who clothed himself in weakness and came down, born as a baby. And that same Jesus is the same man who grew up, as we read in the New Testament, who would command the wind and the waves at a word, who would cast demons out and they would obey who would open the eyes of the blind and make those who are lame walk and give those who cannot hear hearing again and call the dead back to life and ultimately lay his life down. 
I want to suggest to you that the type of king that our world so desperately needs, the type of leader that our world so desperately needs, and the type of shepherd that our souls long for is Jesus. And contrary to Herod's response, there were some other kings, wise men or magi, who also recognized Jesus that first Christmas. And they had a very different response to Jesus. Have a look at their response in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going, house, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Christmas is a recognition of Jesus' rightful rule of this world. And our response to him is to do exactly what the Magi did, to worship him. To worship him. You know, close to two, three billion people this Christmas will worship Jesus in some shape or form. We'll, we'll say that he has shaped their worldview. Close to three billion people. How is it that a child born out of wedlock in shady circumstances to a poor Jewish family in a rural backwater town can change? Like our whole calendar in the West is shaped around history before Jesus and history after Jesus. He has captivated the imaginations of our world ever since. I want to suggest to you this morning that he is someone that we cannot ignore. How do we celebrate Christmas properly? It's by worshipping Jesus. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian said. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honour, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. At Christmas, we remember that God came down in weakness, in vulnerability, laying in a manger for the sake of our world. And that is the tone of his leadership. This is the tone of how he will rule this world. And he is the king who has promised to make all things new. He is the king who we long for to bring peace to the world, to bring hope to the world, to bring light into the darkness. The great modern prophet Kelly Clarkson says this about Christmas. The thing about Christmas is that it almost doesn't matter what mood you're in or what kind of year you've had. Christmas is a fresh start. And it's kind of true. Thank you, Kelly, for that sage wisdom. Christmas is a fresh start. The fresh start that our world so desperately needs, the fresh start that we so desperately need, because this king has been born to restore a broken humanity and broken humanity to make this world new again. This Christmas, 
No matter what your year has looked like, no matter what next week will look like, no matter how amazing or dysfunctional your Christmas will look like, this season is a reminder for us that we have been offered a fresh start. And so our hope and prayer is that you will receive that this Christmas season and head into the next week not with the frantic chaos of preparing for Christmas, but with the acute reminder that our God loves us, that he has come down and he has promised to make all things new and that this Christmas is a fresh start for all of us. Let me pray for us as the band comes up to lead us in a few carols. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the God who has not left this world to descend into the chaos of our own sin and brokenness. But Father, we thank you that you have stepped in. You've offered your best. Jesus, we thank you that you walked in our shoes. You encountered the brokenness of this world. You know what it's like that you are the type of king who was promised to set all things right and not by violence and not by coercion, but by the gentle power of the cross. And Father, this Christmas, I pray that you would remind us of the things that we so desperately need and the hope that comes with this time. Help us to be your people, a people of peace, people of hope, people of joy, and a people of love. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Bless your church.